Yeah, somebody, and I believe they were Notre Dame fans, said, uh, you know, LSU lost because Brian Kelly is the devil. So, <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then and then you had North Carolina and Appalachian, Appalachian State. 63-61, Appalachian State almost pulled off one of the biggest comebacks in the it, history of college football. Appalachian State has yeah. had some cool wins like that before, as we yeah. know. Yeah, so uh, like I said at the, uh, at the outset, right, if, if this first weekend was any indication of what what the fall is going to be like, we're going to watch some great college football. Yeah. And keep in mind, the Ivy League didn't even start yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, right, right, <laughs> absolutely. Welcome to Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. This is episode number 34 of the podcast that takes a unique look at the sports industry, sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and sometimes even serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. So college football opened in a big way this weekend, and the NFL kicks off this week. Major League Baseball is barreling towards the playoffs with a few great races still to play out in a few divisions in the U.S. Open Tennis Spectacular will play out here in New York City this week. No shortage of things going on. So, Tim, tell us what's on your mind. Let's start with college football. I think there's a, this past weekend, if it's any indication of what the rest of the season is going to be like, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun going on this fall. Watched, uh, watched a number of games, not the least of which was Ohio State versus Notre Dame. Ohio State looks like they're for real. Um, they just next man up the whole game. But, um, and I say this because it's an opportunity to call out Cornell, but their defensive coordinator is a friend of mine, former head coach wow. at Cornell University. Jim Knowles was sort of the the guy in demand in college football this past offseason. He went from the defensive coordinator position at Oklahoma State. Uh, he got hired on the Ohio State staff. And that, uh, that defense looks formidable. Wait, what? Are you saying that cross players let you hang out with football players? Like, aren't the lacrosse guys the like the cool kids on campus at Cornell? Or is it the no, football guys? no, no, no? He was uh, Jim was a good player there, and and then uh, decided to get into coaching, and he paid he paid his dues, and uh, you know he's had stops at Ole Miss, Duke, Oklahoma State, uh, and now Ohio State. But, uh, yeah, good guy. A couple of years younger than me. But uh, making a reported $2 million a year, which is a nice living for a coordinator position. Not bad. But, Not uh, bad. but the big news in college football was the expansion of the playoffs to 12 teams. Supposedly happening in 2026 but I've heard it could happen as early as 2024. I think this is probably one of the least surprising things in college football. Would you agree? I would agree. And, and in fact, there had been recommendations back last year, I think, that, that said this is, the, this is the direction we should go. And there were a couple of the uh, commissioners, I think, that uh, weren't ready necessarily to, to take it. I think uh, particularly, you know, the SEC seems like they're always going to get two teams in this uh, in the CFP. So maybe they were happy that it, you know, just kind of keeping it the way it is. But I think everyone's come around. This is where it had been heading. 
And the question is, how quickly can they get this thing implemented? They are planning on meeting this week to get those discussions going, uh, which is the 10 um, FBS commissioners, along with uh, the Notre Dame AD, Jack Swarbrick, um, to uh, to put that together. So I, I listen, I think they have the bowl games uh, lined up that would serve as the, as the points for that, uh, the locations for that, and how they'll rotate. Um, that stuff I think they can pull together pretty quickly because they have been talking about this for a while. So I, I do think there's a very solid chance that it could, uh, it could happen before uh, 2026. I think the interesting thing is there is so much change happening on the conference level, and what's that going to mean with SE and UCLA coming to the Big Ten, with Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC, uh, and how quickly those things will happen, and whether this um, accelerates those moves. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the impact it has, whether to your point, whether or not it speeds up sort of this game of musical chairs that's going on with conference realignment. Um, listen, I, I, I'm I'm not saying this in a cynical way. Uh, this is this is about money, right? Uh, more teams mm-hmm. can make more money. Um, the, the networks can make more money with more games. What will be interesting to see is how long. <laughs> Well, I know how long it will be because as soon as it starts, the question will be, well, how come team number 13 didn't make it in, right? Because part of the reason they're doing this is because some really good teams have been left out of the mix in the past, right? But when you go to 12 teams, then what's going to happen is 13th team is going to have a, a, a complaint and sometimes might have even a valid complaint. Well, I think that's that's an interesting point. Is it it is it leaving teams out that were on the, uh, you know, right on the fence is whether or not they should be in that final four. Um, the fact is, though, those teams that, you know, Georgia, Georgia annihilated Oregon this year. And I, I don't think Oregon's a, expected to be a horrible team. Um, I think Georgia. No, they were right. They were right going into that. Right. Into so, that game. so you think, and I think everybody preseason, I haven't looked at that. I've, probably should have before this segment, right? To look to exactly what the what the the predictions were in terms of who was going to be in the college football playoff. I'm guessing Georgia was on that list. They're going to be amazing. Um, you know, and so if you looked at the college football playoffs and take Georgia against the team that's 12th named in that, I think it would be a complete route. I would expect that it would be a complete. So that's the the people that are against that saying, what difference does it make? It's there's only this many teams that really are vying for it. A little different than basketball. Your point's well taken, right? And one versus 12 might be a route, you know, on paper in particular. Um, but they're, they're going to have to sort of uh, reward those teams that go undefeated or are in the top four. Uh, that's going to be something they're going to have to address obviously but yeah that was that georgia game was another one of the games i watched this past weekend and uh uh you know georgia boy you know stetson bennett looked in particular looked really good i mean uh i'm not ready to hand him the heisman trophy yet but he certainly has put himself in the mix after that first game yeah he kind of came out of the national championship game with a little bit of confidence (laughs) yeah a little swagger Uh, a little swagger a little yeah yeah, he's got a little Joe Burrow swagger going now. <laughs> Do you happen to catch that uh, the Iowa game this week? They they scored a whopping seven points, yet did not score a touchdown. <laughs> Two safeties and a field goal. I, I'm a I bit saw, of an Iowa. I'm a bit of an Iowa Hawkeyes fan, so uh, so I followed that one. 
I, I saw a horrible joke on Twitter because you know the, the tradition at Iowa football, right? Where they turn and they Wonderful salute the tradition. kids. And somebody said those poor kids were forced to watch the Iowa game. Yeah, that was uh that was a weird game. Yeah. And then uh uh Brian Kelly's first uh first game at LSU <laughs> ended uh not in the way he would have would have hoped. No, I mean it was it was there have to be so many people that are like, gosh, that certainly was a nice bit of karma there, uh, right? Yes, I think you're missing uh, an extra point. Uh, yeah, somebody, and I believe they were Notre Dame fans, said, uh, you know, LSU lost because Brian Kelly is the devil. So, <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then and then you had North Carolina and Appalachian, Appalachian State. 63-61, Appalachian State almost pulled off one of the biggest comebacks in the it, history of college football. Appalachian State at the, is- He's yeah. had some cool wins like that before, as we know. Yeah. So, uh, like I said at the uh, at the outset, right? If if this first weekend was any indication of what what the fall is going to be like, we're going to watch some great college football. Yeah. And keep in mind, the Ivy League didn't even start yet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, right, right, <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to be talking a lot about college sports. I think in the in the weeks ahead here. Um, as the as the college football season really uh, gets going, uh, we plan to have a guest that's very um, immediately involved in in what all these changes going on in college sports mean, um, and well, uh, what it means. You're for teasing guests now at this point. I'm teasing. I am teasing guests. So much confidence we have. That's how much confidence we have in our guest lineup and roster. Um, well, the other thing that's obviously happening this week is the NFL kicks off and. Um, the NFL continues to be this unbelievably strong property. And uh, uh, there are reports that 90% of you know inventory has already been scooped up. The interesting thing, and I mean, the numbers just are big, right? I mean, they just fetch giant audiences on these. Yeah, I've heard, games. Uh, yeah, I've heard 30s are going up for up to $680,000 right. per spot. Right. Uh, Super Bowls ads are going to go for $6 million this year. And one of the interesting things about this season is going to be what, if anything, the the Amazon Thursday night games are going to do. The numbers from the their preseason game, which was the uh, Texans 49ers, didn't do that well. Mm-hmm. It's got a few people worried. Um, it averaged just over a million. And for an NFL national game, that's small and yeah. the worst part about that is that actually included the over the airs in the local markets because it still has to go over the air in the local markets so that's got a few people worried and whether it's going to uphold the rates listen i i still feel that this is where things are going um and uh, and we will have to see and we're not you know i'm not i'm not ready to say it, it can't work and no one knows how to find games on on streaming or on amazon i think the numbers are big enough for amazon prime that uh, you know that people can find it but I think until that uh, Chargers-Chiefs game on the uh, September 15th, um, you know, we're going to be waiting to see what those numbers are. But, uh, you know, and if those are bad, then I think there's going to be some cause for concern. Yeah, it's interesting. I logged on to Prime Video earlier to to look for something, and I got a notification as soon as I logged on saying that I was able to um, record uh, – the NFL game, as well as any shoulder programming around it. Now, I don't know if that was in response to 
the poor ratings in the preseason game or if that was already in the works or if it was in the works, but they decided to promote the functionality a little bit more. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't read too much into a preseason game, right? But but you're right. There are going to be a lot of people who yeah. wrote some pretty big checks. We're going to be looking looking at that next yeah. week. No, I I completely agree with you that it uh, it's preseason. So let's let's hold on and not get uh, you know overly concerned or overly anxious about this. But it was on the low end of where preseason games have been. Yeah. Um, and it was it was something new. So uh, you know I I didn't watch that much of the game, but I did watch because I wanted to see you know, what they did. And of course, you know, the Amazon smiley face is the first down, you know, marker in the direction <laughs> on the field. I thought was, you know, that was one thing I noticed. Um, uh, we'll see if they actually try to get that sponsored by another brand, but I doubt it. That is a big brand play for them. Um, anyway, I, the broadcast itself was quite good and very professional and very solid, very different approach than what uh, Apple took with their, you know, when they came out of the box with their MLB broadcasts. Mm-hmm. So, David, you were telling me before uh, we we came on the air that you had been out to the U.S. Open. Let's let's talk about that for a few minutes. Some big news since we last uh, recorded last week. Right, first of all, I th- I thought that we would be talking about the great run that Serena Williams was having in her final trip to the U.S. Open, but that was not to be. She lost. Uh, what was it last Friday? Uh, but uh, Francis Tiafo. Uh, an American-born player, uh, beat Rafael Nadal, the first match that Nadal has lost in, in a Grand Slam tournament this year. So we're seeing the changing of the guard, I think. The, um, the U.S. Open is, is a great event. And for those of you who have never been there, you should try to get there. If you can deal with the ridiculous traffic in and out, highly recommend Long Island Rail or, or the subway system of New York to get there. Um, it's, uh, and, and they're setting records. They're, they're having their best numbers they've ever had apparently. But, um, uh, Tiafo match last night. I, I didn't, Tiafo, I, I apologize. I, I think I pronounce it as, Tiafo. well, you, 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 you may have it right. I'll, we'll have to go back and look. Oh. I think I have it right. I just assume um, when I say something, you say I think he's, I, I listen, if he keeps this run up, we'll just start calling him Francis, right? Yeah. This is a great story of a uh, of a young man with um i believe two immigrant parents and yes. he took up the game and he plays with great abandon and uh, enthusiasm and the fans just really you know react to him uh i of course was eating i was i wasn't in that was at the well, the earlier uh, session so i i was out last night at the evening session so i didn't get to watch that live but it was on and it was great because you had you know rafa's rafa and we cheer for him, and he's amazing. Uh, but uh, you know, this—it uh, was—it was great to see an American uh, play and and be able to beat this great champion, uh, Rafael Nadal. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm full in on uh, I'm full in on his uh, on his camp for sure. Yeah, um, I, I don't know yeah. if you heard his post match press conference, but he was talking about how important and how much it meant for him for his parents to be able to see that match. So he sounds like he's a pretty grounded young man. He uh, he did something that was that was pretty rare, and it almost looked as though Nadal was caught a little off guard. Um, at when he won, he came on the other side of the net. He didn't, you know, he didn't Bobby Riggs it and jump over. By the way, for the, that's an old, another old reference, people. Um, um, he he walked around in front of the umpire and came to the other side to hug Rafa. 
And I think that was a little odd because they didn't meet at the net. I think he was that overwhelmed by beating someone that I'm sure is an idol of his, right? Sure. Um, and uh, so it was a it was a really it was a really cool moment, and we'll see. I haven't looked at the draw. I need to see who who he has coming up next. Alcaraz had an unbelievable match last night against Chilich as well. Um, we left we left as that one was starting. Um, but I did see a great uh, uh, Collins and uh, Danielle Collins, a American woman against Arena uh, uh, Sabalanka, which was a, actually quite a good match um, last night. But yeah, you know, Serena, you, you mentioned Serena going out two wins and then she lost a really good match against a, a you know, a, a woman that I think is emerging as a fan favorite who had an incredible interview after that match, after Serena got uh, heralded. Uh, and as she deserves, you, you know, the people that have been coming out and honoring Serena and what they've meant for um, to them as, you know, as players that have that have come up and followed her and her sister Venus. It's it's just been really cool. And some of these spots that, have, you know, yeah. um, you know, that are that are coming out very similar to when, say, Derek Jeter res- retired um, just have been great and nice to see great creative work go against somebody that's meant so much to so many people that yeah. are, you know, thinking about, you know, pursuing a career uh, that is kind of an against all odds type of career. Yeah. I can't help but be reminded of the response that the, that the U S open crowd had to Naomi Osaka when she beat Serena Williams, um, which was, I thought a black eye on the sport at that particular time. So um, different vibe, different, different situation this time, but it did, it it did bring back that memory. At one point Mm -hmm. something happened and maybe it was a close call. I mean, all of this is automated now, so the calls aren't off. Um, and the and the crowd was booing a little, and she basically like stop. And the announcers were like, "Serena's got so much power right now." She's like, <laughs> she she says stop, and people stop. It's like it's like a Springsteen concert back in the day. Like we'll sack this city, okay, Bruce. <laughs> we know that there will not be a repeat champion in singles. So, yeah. uh, you know, on both the on both the women's and the men's side. Want to take a couple uh, quick hits? Sure. Might have to bring a new theme song out. Wow, you live for that. Quick hits. We're about to share some tidbits. Things that didn't make it on the main list. Doesn't mean we think they're not worth a sh- Just to stay on the theme of US Open. Interesting that Medvedev was able to was allowed to play. He was not, as you recall, was not allowed to play in Wimbledon because of uh, the the uh, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. But the USTA and the U.S. government allowed him to come over here and play. And then uh, and then uh, your favorite uh, uh, Djokovic, right? Still not play, still. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know how much he's spending on bandages, but he's been cutting off his nose despite his face uh, by missing out on two majors as he as he looks to set the record. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Wimbledon also did not allow uh, players from Belarus to play and Sabalenka mm-hmm. happens to be from from Belarus. So I listen, I you know, we had this discussion with Donald Dell. I, I feel like it's the it's questionable whether Wimbledon should have done what it did. I'm happy to see Medvedev, Medvedev is the defending champ um and he's i believe he was in as the number one seed uh so he should be be there got beaten by your guy um the other guy curios 
Uh, <laughs> just just as un, a match that I kept having to turn away because it's like, how much talking can these guys do? It was a, it was a little crazy. But Djokovic has stayed very busy, and he's you know he's the uh, he's the person behind this new players union. Something that I think we'll be talking about in the future. Um, yeah, once we, on once we get sick of talking of live golf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, uh, lots of stuff going on in the tennis world, and of course, at the end of this season, they plan to you know do the um, Netflix show similar to Drive to Survive for Formula One on on the tennis world, and Djokovic is going to be a big piece of that story because he's been a big part of the news um, yeah. this season. Um, What's your one, quick hit? Yeah, uh, well, I have a I have a couple that I want to hit. One, uh, Ted Phillips, a longtime president of the Chicago Bears, which are my team. If you follow this podcast, you know I'm a Chicago Bears fan. And he's leaving, and it's being celebrated big in Chicago because, you know, fans aren't necessarily a big fan of Ted Phillips. Um, I think he was always been in a tough situation because of the McCaskey family and what that meant. But um, uh, he's retiring. The guy was always very pleasant to me. I have nothing personally bad to say about, about Ted. Um, uh, but he plans to retire at the end of this season, which I suspect will be on the last regular season game, <laughs> uh, when the bears visit the Vikings. Um, so I don't expect them to, to go much further. I think they're playing in a division that's going to be tough to make anything happen, but Hey, maybe Justin Fields will, uh, uh, will, will bring them out of this darkness and, uh, and lead them to a playoff spot. We will see. And uh, so I wish Ted Phillips nothing but the, nothing but the yeah, last. Well, it's, it's been, been a tough it's, it's been a tough road for him yeah it's gonna be a long season for football fans in new york too yeah so i feel you definitely will and i also want to announce something back to the college space because i think it's a big deal the first apparently mascot nil deal comes out of bucknell <laughs> the the bucknell bison which might say something about and i need to because i'm i'm going to set this up because my brothers and sister went to Bucknell. I was the black sheep of the family. Um, but doesn't it say something about the, you know, if their mascot gets this NIL deal and it's the first one, I'm wondering if they like considered, you know, doing some student athlete deals and they're like, mascot seems like the best choice for us. Well, I, I, you know, uh, <laughs> off air, I'll have to tell you my story about my recruiting trip to Bucknell university. I don't know if it's particularly, uh, appropriate to say on the air but um but we'll, we'll uh, get yeah. to, we'll get to that at some point we'll get yeah, to that but, at some point but listen congratulations <laughs> this is a uh, bucknell's a learfield property and they signed in and they did this i guess could do it through learfield for the mascot because it's a school property school ip uh, mm -hmm. ip rather than uh name image likeness of a student athlete yeah so now I wonder, I wonder how much of a uh, how much of a cut the kid who Puts now is it one person who wears a bison's costume or is well, it two and, and, <laughs> and, and what do you put on your resume if you're the back end of the bison? Right. <laughs> well, well, what I've heard is that the individuals do. That is that's a great point, right? Because I think it's kind of a back end nil deal. Like they're only going to get a cut of whoever gets to play. It gets a cut of that, but the mascot itself. We'll have to say I don't I don't want to say this for sure, but the the reporting is is that the the student athletes I shouldn't say. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not athletic, the mascot, so don't take that the wrong way. But the the students that play the mat that are the mascot are going to get paid on this deal, you know, because Bucknell, of course, you know, always has been the you know the trendsetter in all things. 
Um, <laughs> it's you know, this school of 3000 or so in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, it's, it, Lewisburg, am, Pennsylvania, it is not the end of the world, but you I, can throw I, a rock and hit it from there. It's a beautiful campus. It, it's a fantastic school. Well, but it is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, we yeah, it is a beautiful campus. By the way, it's a beautiful campus. And it is it is the reason that one of the re big reasons that I went to Wake Forest actually got the same architect. So wait, you wait, 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 what? I, you yeah, chose wait. your school in part. I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't chose well, you know, I, I said I partly chose it. You didn't hear me out. I partly yeah, but even if even that it entered into your thinking. Are you when you when you're done, let me know and I'll explain my okay, please. All Ex side of this. Explain. <laughs> So when I went to visit Wake Forest, it felt comfortable because one of the few places I knew in the in you know college world was Bucknell because I had two older okay. brothers that had All gone right. there and it that felt right. It felt comfortable. The difference is is that we had a you know a reasonable athletic program, not particularly a great one, but it was in the ACC and you know obviously it's a little better than Bucknell um, as a school. <laughs> The opinion of my co-host is not yeah. necessarily. No, this is this is all this is all directed at my family. This is all directed <laughs> at my family, Tim. Um, we have this ongoing debate all the time. So sorry to bore all you listeners with uh, that. We we appreciate you obliging me. Yeah, I think if there's anything that. if there's anything more boring than Ivy League sports, it's Patriot League sports. <laughs> <laughs> when my brother went there and played his freshman year um, on the JV squad. The head coach of the program, Jim Valvano. So wow. uh, there's there's that there's that. I got to hit one more uh, quick hit here because there was there was actually, and it's taken a while to get to it. There was actually huge news out of uh, Live Golf um, that you know really will change the landscape. I think of professional golf. They're allowing shorts. They're allowing shorts. Boy, when they said they were going to change the sport, they weren't kidding, were they? Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't repeat what I think is the quote of this week, the quote of the week, right? Gary Player, the legendary golf golfer, uh, when asked about live golf, said he thinks it's a tour for people who have no confidence in their future. Yeah, he came, <laughs> he came out he came out pretty hard as as has Nicholas, not in so not in such um, definitive language. Now. Gary Player has been criticized quite a bit for that comment, of course, as well, because he has been he has served as an ambassador for uh, for Saudi golf. Um, so a lot of people have, have brushed him back on that. But I think he has severed that relationship. Now, oh, gosh, horrible word choice there. Um, but uh, um, it, it, listen, people, the lines are drawn on this thing, man. The lines are drawn. What do you say? Take a break. Come back with yeah. our guest. Let's do it. OK. It's time for our guest. So we are back. You know, we've been wanting to have today's guest on the show for a while since there are so many matters of the law facing the sports industry. Pretty much since I first met Mike McCann, which I think was in 2013, he's become the person I think of contacting when I have a question about sports law and I live with a lawyer. Michael McCann is the director of Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. He's the legal analyst and senior sports reporter at Sportico, and prior to joining Sportico, was a legal analyst and staff writer for Sports Illustrated from 2007 to 2020. He also has several books to his credit, including 
one he co-authored with Ed O'Bannon called Court Justice, the Inside Story of My Battle Against the NCAA. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good to reconnect. And uh, I do want to say one thing. We um, this is a very this is a first. You are our second Michael McCann on the show, and as coincidence would have it, that other one went to Georgetown undergrad as well. So oh. pretty amazing symmetry we create on the Wait What podcast. <laughs> it's a good all right. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, we're gonna. We're going to jump in with the subject that we've talked way more about than we ever thought we would have on that podcast, and that's Live versus PGA Tour, and I guess the other golf bodies as well. Um, wanted to get your perspective on whether you think uh, the PGA Tour is on solid ground against the suits that have been filed uh, by Live players uh, looking to have access uh, on the tour events. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are there are dueling arguments that both have maybe some merit, and I don't think the case is going to go away anytime soon. If there's a trial is scheduled for 2024, and that could easily get pushed back. But the tour has a good argument that the golfers agreed to these rules, and that's clear, right? The golfers agreed not to play for any rivals, and that the tour has the right to bar golfers from joining a rival league, just like if you play. You know, in the NBA, you can't join a rival or, you know, go to a different league in Europe in the middle of the season. You have to sort of stay with one employer. So in that regard, the tour has a straightforward argument. And also, I think some of the golfers have made it more difficult for Live Golf because they've talked about how great this new league is. Well, if it's so great, then why is the tour a monopoly? It doesn't seem like the tour is a monopoly if the other league's better, <laughs> right? So, so in a way, it sort of undermines their case. On the other hand, Liv can argue that the tour has made it very expensive to compete and that it's created all sorts of restrictions on golfers that make it difficult to have a more competitive market. And that's their their sort of lead argument that the marketplace would be better off with multiple leagues. And that's not an unreasonable argument. I don't know if they're going to win, but it's certainly an interesting case. Mike, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's let's talk about uh, football if you don't mind, Deshaun Watson recently uh, was given a, a, a suspension. Roger Goodell and his role as commissioner said, wait, that's not the final word on it. They went back. They had negotiations with the Players Association that went from a six-game suspension to an 11-game suspension with, I believe, a $5 million fine. Is is this a vindication of the collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and the NFL, or does it show that there could be problems with other players in the future if they find themselves in similar situations? What's your, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? Well, well, Tim, I would say this is unprecedented in the sense that we haven't seen a player accused by multiple people or more than two dozen people. So I, I don't know if this is one of these sort of anomalies and we may not see anything like this again. I mean, what other players have had domestic violence related issues, there weren't uh, so many different accusers and, and not to say it couldn't happen again, but I do think that this is a situation that doesn't have a comparison and maybe that means we won't see it again, or at least not for a long time. Hopefully we never see it again, right? Given the, what's been alleged, but the, the CBA in some ways it, it, it shows that the players got, something in the new cba in terms of the player conduct policy they got a neutral person who ended up being retired judge sue robinson 
to find the facts and make a initial decision. And that's a new system that, that Tom Brady didn't have that. Adrian Peterson didn't have that. Ezekiel Elliott didn't have that. So in that regard, having this new person sort of enter the picture, I think shows the process work. Now, a lot of people were critical of Judge Robinson saying six games is too light, given what the accusations are. I would say she did her job in the sense that she looked at how the NFL has applied its rules. And under labor law, there's something called work, uh, the, the law of the shop, which is basically you can't treat employees differently because you're suddenly more upset about something than before. And she argued that based on the NFL's prior applications of rules, that six games was an appropriate punishment and to change the rules on the fly against Watson isn't fair. That's sort of doing things after the fact. So uh, the fact that they ultimately reached a settlement, I think shows that Watson's camp and the NFLPA knew that the suspension was gonna be elevated in the appeal, maybe to a season, maybe beyond a season. And the NFL knew that Watson would sue. So they avert sort of those, those outcomes by reaching that 11 game deal. Okay, we're moving around the horn on a lot of different topics here. Um, we're going to jump to college sports now, Mike. Um, name, image, and likeness situation. Obviously, it's talked about a lot. It's a subject matter and you know, tons of different storylines. Um, from your perspective, are the states moving expeditiously enough on trying to create some fair guidelines uh, on this? Uh, and then as a follow-up on that, do you suspect that Congress will ultimately have to get involved or should they get involved in trying to create some sort of standard across the country? Yeah, I think what we've seen so far, Dave, is just sort of the market has played itself out. That last year, and I got to testify before the Senate on whether or not Congress should get involved, the, the time for Congress to act was before. I think it's, mm -hmm. pro it's probably too late now, honestly, because the, it, it, the market has taken shape and the NCAA hasn't really enforced rules as far as we can tell in terms of punishing you know these nil collectives which i think sort of run into the area of it looks like pay for play in some cases not nil of uh, the ncaa has to act and if the ncaa doesn't act it, i don't know why members of congress are going to sort of say you know why should we act ourselves if you if you the league aren't going to take any action uh, why is it worthy of congress's time to look at this and i think that's a big hurdle for the ncaa i think the ncaa made a lot of mistakes along the way uh, the o'bannon case was 2009 they should have known honestly then that the time to make a rule change was was early on and they they didn't and they lost to o'bannon and then states california being the first with the fair pay to play act and then florida sort of jumped ahead of the line by having its law go into effect july 1 2021 then the NCAA went to Congress really asking for help, but you know, good luck, right? Because Congress doesn't, Congress is slow and they, they have hearings and more hearings and nothing, there, I mean, for all the hearings, for all the bills, Dave, there were no votes. I mean, think about that, like a dozen bills, none of them got a vote. There were a lot of press conferences. There were a lot of mm -hmm. media stories, but there, there were no votes. and. Uh, I, I think it's tough now to sort of put the genie in the box. It's sort of the market's out there. Well, your your comment about 
the NCAA being too slow to act. I mean, that's been a, a bit of a common story is they're, they're not necessarily leading when they have the opportunity to lead. And now we're in this situation on this employee status scenario where they seem to be working overtime to make sure that everyone knows that they aren't employees. Um, why is this issue so important? Where do you feel it stands currently and, and where's it going to head? Uh, the employee issue is really important in the sense that it is a potential game changer if college athletes are recognized as employees. And there are several ways in which that could happen, one of which is through litigation. And there's a case, Johnson versus the NCAA, which is in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, which says that under the Fair Labor Standards Act, college athletes are employees. So that case is basically saying, well, if the college student who works at the ticket counter at a game gets paid, if the student who helps you get to a, to your seat gets paid, why isn't the player paid? And that's work study. That's the work study case. And there are work study students of whom well, what about scholarships? Well, work study students have scholarships too. So it isn't as if having a scholarship means you can't pay them work study. So that case is about saying college athletes should be paid at least like work study classmates. There's that case. And then there's uh, the possibility of the National Labor Relations Board uh, siding with those who are who have said that college athletes are employees under the National Labor Relations Act, which would be a real game changer because then that would allow players, at least at private colleges, to potentially unionize. But there it's a little bit slower. We Interestingly, we saw Northwestern football players try that about 10 years ago. That didn't work. And we've seen a couple of college re organizations representing or purporting to represent college athletes try it now but we haven't seen college athletes themselves try it so we'll see what happens there uh yeah, at the end of the day it happens and i don't know if it happens through uh you know all college athletes or employees or if it's some subsection of them or whatever it may be but the ncaa has sort of they've tried to stop it but at some point one of these efforts will probably succeed now i don't know if it's you know next year or 2028 or whatever but it's going to be hard to sort of thwart this for the from the ncaa's perspective they could alternatively say okay here's our new set of rules for how we're going to recognize college athletes and maybe that would work but you know playing defense all the time eventually you give up a, a score so let's shift gears yet once again mike um and talk about Brittany griner um in the in the press it it was reported at the time of the, the trial that she pled guilty. Um, but you you wrote that she um, admitted guilt, um, which to us lay people may not seem like a difference, but knowing lawyers, right? You don't use words you don't mean. What's, what's the difference between pleading guilty and admitting guilt? And what implications does that have for her uh, ultimate release? Yeah, I mean, the, one is that, Tim, that that she she didn't say I've committed the crime. She accepted responsibility for the underlying act, which was trying to transport, you know, some sort of drug apparatus uh, through an airport. Her argument was that she didn't she didn't intend to break Russian law. She made a mistake packing that she just sort of rushed and put it in the carry on. and. The difference is that she's not saying I'm guilty of the crime. She's saying, I accept that what I did violates the law, but I didn't do it with intent. 
in truth, I, I don't know if it ended up making much of a difference because she got a very long prison sentence. And it, it also the US government has said that she's being wrongfully detained and they came to that conclusion before her trial. So I guess it's consistent with her saying she's being wrongfully detained. I, I think it was an effort to try to convince the judge to impose a lighter sentence, but th that didn't seem to succeed. She got a very long sentence. Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, Tim, her ability to leave the country, to leave Russia's is going to be a diplomatic question. She's going to be traded for some prisoner the U.S. has or an ally has or some combination of that. And I think the question is really when will she be released in a matter of months or are we talking years? Other Americans that have been detained, it's been years. And also you know, th there are other Americans who are not who don't have that sort of celebrity power. And I know that their families have said, what about them? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's a fair point. Absolutely. Is that is the term wrongfully detained that the U.S. uses? Is that a, a diplomatic or a Department of State term to to sort of put her in a, in a category of how it's handled from the Department of State? Yeah, it is. So it, it, it the, the key part of that is to say no matter what happens to her in Russia's legal system, she's being wrongfully detained. Okay. So it makes the finding of you know her getting sentenced to prison irrelevant from the U.S. standpoint. That even though a court has found her uh, ultimately guilty, it's immaterial from the U.S.'s perspective. And they're going to continue to try to negotiate a release, as opposed to you know, say an American uh, abroad commits a robbery and is actually guilty, or at least the government believes that that person's guilty. Then then we would we would not put them in that sort of priority category of wrongfully detained. We don't normally do it this way on this show, but we tend to highlight when things are called out as as good questions. So I'm doing this a bit in reverse. I want to say to Tim, that was a great question. That's a great follow-up question, my friend. Thank you. Learn something on that. Um, okay. We're now rounding the bases here a little further and jumping actually into baseball. Uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association confirmed that it has launched an effort to unionize all minor league baseball players across the country, um, meaning that have their own bargaining unit under the MLBPA. Talk to us about this. What does this mean for major league baseball? And what does this mean for, for players, both short and long term? Well, I think one, Dave, is that it sort of highlights you know, why hasn't this happened before? I mean, the, the, this, the issues involving minor league players have been known for a long time, and the Players Association didn't bring them in before, which has been a, a recurring criticism against the MLBPA. Which, so this tries to address that. I, I think one interesting question I, I have is sort of, does this mean that player salaries will go higher in the minors? We know, at least according to baseball's economic data, Minor league baseball is a real money loser, and it's not profitable. Uh, it's it's so if to the extent that that's accurate, it's hard for unions to say pay us more if the business is losing money. Now the the union is going to have to say, well, assuming so, let's assume it goes forward, right? Let's assume the, that they get thirty percent of the voting cards authorized, and then a majority decide to join the union. I think it's going to be a really interesting question as to what the union, the, the MLBPA can get on behalf of the minor league players if, in fact, baseball is losing all this money in the minors. Now, the counter argument is, well, you're, you say you're losing all this money, then why do you have it? 
you must be getting something else from it. You're getting developmental uh, value to players. The counter argument to that is, well, okay, I, I think it's 95% of players drafted after the 10th round never make it to the big leagues. So a lot of the players in the average age when players leave the minors is 23. So in the last three years, normally unions are representing those that work in a profession for many years, uh, well into their adulthood. And baseball has said, that's really not what the minors are about. The minors are normally about players who are very young that try and, and the vast majority don't make it. And then they go on to grad school or they go on to pursue another occupation. And that's always been one challenge with unionizing is that the players that have a chance of going to the majors, is it really in their interest to join a union in the minors when their goal is to get to the big leagues? So that also goes into the, what is the bargaining unit? If you're a 19 year old super prospect, your concern is getting to the big leagues, not necessarily workplace matters in the minors, I'm guessing, mm. right? right? So it's gonna be, I think the, the economics of minor league baseball and just sort of the different categories. But, you know, look, for a long time, minor league players are paid very little. Baseball has improved that in recent years. So maybe that will get better. But I think it's a really interesting sort of economic scenario. Now let's shift gears once again. Um, two and a half years ago, the sports world shut down. Um, I never paid more attention to force majeure clauses in contracts than I did shortly after the shutdown. Uh, when my clients' brands who were sponsors were looking at the implications of a, a shutdown in sports. So COVID's affected everything, including sports law. Um, going forward, what, what are the long-term, what's long COVID as it relates to sports law? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, COVID obviously, I mean, as we all know, it's been such an impact on our on our country. It's, and it's nice that the world seems like it's getting a lot more normal in 2022 than it was in the past couple of years. Uh, just going to stuff and not wearing a mask. I mean, you know, our, our classes at the law school are now, you know, mask free, there are no restrictions. And so, so, I mean, A, I'm happy that it seems like the world, and maybe I'm naive, but it seems like the world's getting kind of back to normal. But in terms of what the lessons are, Tim, I, I think Certainly contract drafting is a big lesson. Uh, preparing if, if there's, you know, God forbid, some other pandemic that comes up. Some of the leagues and their insurance companies and sponsors were prepared for it, others were not. And it's led to all sorts of litigation involving insurance companies about the meaning of clauses. Also, it, are things canceled because of the pandemic or are things canceled because the government shuts things down? Well, that, that distinction it seems like it's related, but it actually has legal significance because the contracts don't always provide for both in terms of recovery. So would, I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, would would a government shutdown, given the size of the federal government, would that would that be a force majeure? It, it depends, right? It, it, so, so there's actual litigation on that question about why is something being shut down? Is it the virus? Is it is it the government deciding to shut something down unnecessarily? Does the virus itself affect the physical qualities of the facility? I mean, the, the virus, the, it's back to, you know, it's, it's a virus, right? It, it, it's alive, it's on it, but it's also, you know, it dies quickly. I mean, so there's all sorts of, there's no easy answers to those. There have been 
numerous cases filed, particularly in California, but elsewhere, about what are the responsibilities of insurance? Obviously, insurance companies are saying, you know, the clause doesn't apply. But uh, I, I think the lesson will be better contract drafting. I mean, we, no one knew about this. We didn't. I mean, maybe it was foreseeable, but I don't remember anyone talking about a pandemic that was going to shut the country down before. Just needed to read Michael Crichton a little more when we were young, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. And as I like to say, you know, we may be done with COVID, but COVID's not necessarily done with us. I have wanted to ask you this for a while, Mike. Deflategate, watershed event in sports law. So much so that you actually created a law school class around it. Beyond the Tom Brady intrigue piece of it, what made Deflategate such a unique situation and why was it so significant? I think it was significant because in part, the science didn't match up with the law. Right. So we know after the NFL had its findings and we had neutral scientists come up with counter findings. And I remember uh, the, the deflate gate course. It wasn't even my idea. It was the associate dean of my law school. She said, why don't, why don't you, we're, we're going to start teaching one undergrad class a year and we'd like you to go teach that the first one. And the undergrads have these really interesting topics. And she thought of and Margaret McCabe was said, she said, why don't you do one on deflate gate? Initially, I go, come on, I can't do a class on Deflategate, but it ended up being a great class because there's so much there. There's arbitration, there's labor law, there are all sorts, students really learn, people they go, Deflategate, it sounds trivial, it sounds stupid, but you learn a lot about things when you're interested in it, right? So they, students learned a ton about labor law and arbitration law in it. But to me, the big lesson was, and I, and I remember before my first class, a professor at MIT, Dr. John Leonard, out of the blue emails me and says, I would love to come to present to your students. And I said, sure, I mean, great. So he came to UNH and Dr. Leonard said, I, I don't like the Patriots. He said, I'm an Eagles fan. I <laughs> wanted the NFL to be right. I was looking to confirm, you know, I was looking to just basically do the findings. He goes, what, what I found is everything they said makes no sense. They didn't take into consideration all sorts of features, including temperature in these findings. So we did a 157 PowerPoint slide really debunking the NFL's argument. And in truth, none of that mattered in court because at the end of the day, the federal appeals court said, you, Tom Brady, your union didn't negotiate the right to include this information. You didn't get this process that you're claiming must exist. And ultimately that was what made his case fatal was not whether he did it or not, it's whether the commissioner had the ability to decide he did it regardless of the evidence. And, you know, it's a lesson, I think, in part for unions when they're negotiating CBAs that we earlier, we talked about Deshaun Watson, the NFL PA maybe learned a little bit and got a better conduct policy, even if it ended up having an unpopular outcome with Deshaun Watson, uh, there was at least more process involved. And, and, and if the same process was there with Deflategate, I think the I think it's a totally different story. As a college instructor, instructor, I probably shouldn't admit this, but anybody, anytime anybody offers to be a guest lecturer in my class, I jump out. It's one last, <laughs> one last lecture I have to prepare. By the way, Tim is a long-suffering Jets fan, so anything <laughs> anything that penalizes Tom Brady is something that he celebrates. I think he has <laughs> he has that Deflategate date marked on the calendar. Yeah, um, it was, <laughs> <laughs> if I was 15 before I realized that long-suffering wasn't their hometown. 
<laughs> hey, I want to jump back before we ask the final questions that we ask of every guest, speed round type of question, sure. um, jumping back to live to round it out. Any quick thoughts on whether Patrick Reed's uh, defamation suit has any chance? We've already talked about it on the show. It seems like a long shot to us, but wanted to get your perspective, given that so much is going on in the in the live PGA Tour world. Yeah, it's a long shot because what he's alleging seems like opinion and opinion is not defamation. So, you know, if I say, if you guys say Mike is a bad guy, he's an awful person. None of that's defamation. It's just opinion. Uh, actionable defamation has to be a specific factual sounding statement. And also truth is an absolute defense. So yeah, that case faces big hurdles. Tim, see, we could have been lawyers or agents. <laughs> what do you think? At the very least, we could say what we want about people, and as long as it's our opinion, we right. can't be sued for defamation. <laughs> yeah, there was a there was another reason why we wanted to ask that question. We wanted to make sure that we were safe from Patrick Reed and his attorney. Um, well, he could oh, still yeah. sue; it just won't go anywhere. Uh, yeah, yeah, bring it on, man! At seven hundred fifty million, I mean, we need we uh, need some attention. Apparently, we, the, uh, apparently, it's not just the uh, the only balls he has is in, in just well, in his bag. <laughs> well, I mean, Tim, like, where is seven hundred fifty million from? Like, what? what yeah. is that? It's like Tiger Woods level earnings, right? Right. Well, that's why I think he had to. They had to subpoena Tiger just to try to get that number up. And now, since Rory <laughs> Rory won the FedEx playoffs, okay, we're going to jump to the final uh, questions that we like to ask everyone. Going to tweak the initial one for you, um, based on your career path, and uh, it is: How did you get your start in sports law? You know, how did you decide to focus on that as your practice? So when I was in law school, I wrote a paper on players who wanted to go from high school to the NBA. And, I, I, and I'll, I'm a big Celtics fan. And in the 1990s, the Celtics were awful. As you know, it was the Rick Pitino, uh, you know, ML Carr eras that existed. R really bad team. So I knew the NBA draft really well. And I remember watching the 2021 draft. Dick Vitale said, it's a big mistake. These kids are skipping college for the NBA because back then players were able to do that. And I thought, I don't think that that's correct because I looked at the data, I started Googling it and I looked at players who had made the jump. And even those that didn't make the jump, the data suggested it wasn't a mistake. And then I started looking at players, you know, are, are players immature when they enter the NBA at a high school? Are they getting arrested at a higher rate? So I did a study on players who, who have been arrested in the NBA. And I found there was no correlation between years spent in college and the median age of being arrested was something like 26 or 27. Mm. So it's nothing to do with high school. Uh, in, in any event, so I go back, go back to my third year of law school. I, I asked my professor, can I write on this? It's an antitrust paper. He said, sure. I write on it. I publish it in a law review. And that's it. My brother read it. My mother said she read it. I don't think she did. It was an <laughs> academic article. And you know, I, I go practice law in Boston. And life is just sort of marching along. And then... Maurice Claret, a college football player at Ohio State, sues the NFL over the same set of issues. It's age restriction. And my brother tells me, hey, why don't you send his lawyer your, your article? And I thought, well, why would he even read it? I'm just some whatever, you know, random 26-year-old lawyer in, in Boston. I mean, why would he care? Well, he read it, and he brought me on the legal team, Alan Milstein. So I got to be part of the case, which was a historic case. Ultimately, we lost. But... I tell my students, I go, look, you know, I got into sports law through writing and it was a great opportunity for me. It really changed my career. And, you know, that there are other ways of getting into it. 
but I didn't, you know, I wasn't some great former athlete. I like to pretend I was, but my wife will remind me that I wasn't. Uh, I'm not, you know, the charismatic guy that can be a great agent. So that was, that was my way in. True. Great story. And then as a follow-up, one piece of advice that you might have for someone that is actually looking to go into focus on sports law. I think the one is there, there are law schools that offer sports law programs. Mine is one, uh, but there are others that do as well. And I would look at those schools. I would maybe focus a bit on those schools because they're going to provide the kind of training and externship opportunities that really are crucial in sports because sports, as both of you guys know, I mean, it's, it's a lot, it's making personal connections is a huge thing in the sports industry. Uh, I think it's true in any industry, but almost feels like even more important in sports. So that's, that's an important step. And also think about what you want to do. I mean, it, do you want to be a litigator? Do you want to, do you want to be like Jeffrey Kessler and litigate antitrust cases before the Supreme court involving the NCAA? I mean, it's a great career. It's also a hard career to get into. There aren't that many slots in it. The hiring and or, or if you want to be a lawyer for a team, that's great. But just know they don't hire people out of law school. They want seasoned lawyers. So go to go go into a, go to a law firm where there's some track record of that happening. And I would just say this: the big area of hiring for sports law is in college, where a lot of colleges are hiring new lawyers to work in the athletic department because of all the legal issues that are coming up. So if, if someone wants to sort of get into that, that, that's a growing field. Great advice. Really good advice. Uh, Mike, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate you jumping on with, uh, with us. Great insight. I think you hit a lot of the things that we were really wanting to talk about. So thanks for coming on. Mike McCann, University of New Hampshire Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Thank you so much. You got Mike it. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. So thanks again to Mike McCann, uh, another just another in a long line of guests who make us smarter and uh, really are informative and, and entertaining. So thanks to Mike. So this is the time of the show where we start to look forward. Uh, David, what are you looking forward to over the next week or two? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a an interesting week in a lot of ways because I think we'll hear a lot more about what's going on with the college football playoff and the expansion and how they plan to implement uh, those things should be should be coming. Uh, obviously, I'm um, you know it'll be fascinating to watch who comes out of out of the U.S. Open again. Just an event that I love, and I was I'm happy to hear that it's that it's doing so well at the gate. And the numbers that you know when I've been out there, they've just been great. The crowd's been amazing. Um, obviously, we have uh, we have more college football and NFL starting, so that's always a big time. Um, and uh, you know we'll see how how marketers sponsors are activating against it what's the new creative that we're going to be expecting to see against uh with partners including some new ones one other thing that's that's getting back big and i i say this partly because on our very first episode we talked about crypto sponsorship and um you know we did get news that crypto.com who's been sponsoring a lot like a lot for a lot of money um has backed out of what appeared to be a deal they were going to do with UEFA Champions League uh reported at uh, close to 500 million over 5 years um and uh, we had heard um some weeks ago that FTX was pulling out of uh some of the patch discussions they were having so 
you know, the the it seems like the halcyon days of crypto deals are are something that may be a thing of the past, but we'll have to see. And I, you know, I think that that some spending will be halted, but I don't think some of these deals are going away and they'll hold on to some of them just to show the viability of them. And this is where those sponsorships, particularly the crypto.com um uh venue in um uh, in LA taking over for Staples Center and FTX in Miami are going to be ones that they'll will really want to hold on uh because it'll be a it would be a bad sign for the category if if they're not able to hold on to those. So uh, you know I think that uh we're going to this is something we'll continue to keep an eye on as we speculated we would be on that first episode Tim. Yeah, it's an itch, it's an interesting category and and the vi- volatility in in the crypto space is just uh it, you know uh, if you look at my risk profile, it's not something I would certainly be putting a lot of uh, of my money into just because I'm risk averse by nature. But um, I think, you know, the pendulum will swing back and I don't think until it's fully regulated, we'll we'll see a sort of a stability sort of settle into that into that space. But hopefully we do for those people who, have, yeah. you know, are depending on those yeah. massive checks. What about you? What do you have your eye on? Well, this is the time of year where I really start to play pay attention to uh, to baseball. Uh, my beloved Yankees are still five games up. Um, hopefully, as Aaron Boone said the other day after the debacle in, in Tampa Bay that they had hit rock bottom. Um, they continue to be hit by the injury bug, but they're five games up. Um, and, uh, you know, they seem to be seem to be um, – steadying the ship but you know the crosstown rivals the mets are only one game up in their in their division race with uh with the the braves so that's going to be makes a really interesting baseball here in in the new york area in the next month or so so that's what i'm going to be watching and obviously watching the rest of the u.s open and as i said you know i'm i'm already hooked if if uh if college football were a uh were a reality show i'm i'm already hooked on it for this season. I mean, as a Yankees fan, you have, uh, you have to suffer that high expectation, right? I don't yeah. think they were as great as they played in the first half of the year. And they're definitely not as bad as they played since August. But, um, but as your favorite coach, Mike Ditka used to say, you know, you, you are what your record says you are. Right. So, um, you know what, he got a month, month left of games and they're five games up and hopefully uh, they'll start to get some players back. And they'll be uh, they'll be in good shape for the playoffs. So, with that, this is the time in the show where we say thank you to our listeners, to our guests again, Mike McCann. Um, if you enjoy what you're listening to, drop us a note, uh, review us, share us. Uh, but by all means, keep on listening. And until we speak next week, I'm McGee. He's DP, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey.